get going. Are there any questions? Okay, so um, I'm going to return to this data set. Last time I had loaded up an er older version of it, and so it didn't look quite right, but it's fixed now. Um, we're going to be talking about this for quite some time, this data set for a while, I think, and coming back to it throughout the quarter. Um, what we're interested in doing, remember, is this is a data set that follows a group of um, people. We'll look at their ages in a minute, minute but they're mostly older people from uh, 1982 to 1992. And our, what we're trying to do is to predict whether or not they suffer a disability um, uh, in 1992. So disability is a state that they go in and out of. And like I said, there's this questionnaire they fill out that tries to assess the, the, the severity of their disability. But in this case, all we were interested in is uh, the doctor kind of drew, the researcher drew a line and said, you score above this amount, you're disabled. If you score less than this amount, you're not disabled. So our response variable here is a type we've never seen before, we haven't seen yet. It's just a 0-1 response variable. So it has only two values, 0 if you're not disabled and a 1 if you are. So this falls into a kind of very general class of problems called classification problems, where essentially what we're trying to do is look at a group of people and see if we can make predictions about which category they're going to fall into in 10 years' time. So of course for us, um, 10 years' time is this for 1982. Um, what we're really interested in, or this researcher is interested in, is examining the extent to which alcohol intake is a predictor of disability. So we're, what we're trying to understand is how well you can tell, um, based on how much someone is drinking now, what that tells you about what their future is like. Uh, and, and particularly among these slightly older people. Let's just kind of look and see what their, their ages are like. Um, base age. So in 1982, the youngest of them was 42, and the median age was 56, and uh, the maximum was 76. So 10 years later, these group of people fall into three categories, some of, or four categories. Some of them are dead. Um, some of them are disabled or not. Everyone is 10 years older, and some of them are lost to follow-up. So, you know, people move away, and they don't keep their contacts until we lose touch. So, so every year, every, every follow-up of this, there are fewer and fewer, fewer people in the data set because of death and because of loss of follow-up. So, um, you know, so this is mostly an older group, and that's because the researcher is interested in examining how, um, you know, how the euphemistically named seniors, how they change their drinking patterns over time. So uh, she initially wanted to do 65 and up, but there just weren't enough people in the data set, so it got, kept getting younger and younger <laughs> uh, as to what constitutes older drinking. But in any case, um, so this is what we've got. I'll just kind of walk you through some of these variables. Um, some of them I don't quite remember what they are. Um, self-82 is their self-reported health state. One of the things we're going to see is kind of interesting and useful is, is how healthy they are to begin with. Recreate 82 is a code for how much recreation they do and of what types. Uh, abstainer is just uh, an indicator as to whether or not they don't drink. And abstainer for life are people who have never had a drink, you know, so for whatever reason they've, they've never taken alcohol. Um, BMI 82, we've seen this in other data sets. This is a measurement of their, of their uh, body weight that controls for their height. Um, sex, you know, birth year, how old they are, the region of the country they're from, their marital status, their educational level, their income level. There are lots of fascinating demographic things you can get about drinking habits among race and especially among income and some other social economic factors. So maybe contrary to popular belief, but the, the more money you have and the higher education level, the more you tend to drink. Um, not you personally, but it's, it's the population as a whole. 
Um, then it's got these silly variables that just tell you how old they are in each of the years, which you can figure out on your own. Um, the interesting variables here are these QFIs, which I told you before stands for quantity frequency index, and these are what measures their drinking levels. And roughly speaking, these are, um, are, are the number of drinks per week they report. So it's, it's a little awkward because the way the questionnaire goes is it says something like, you know, in, in a typical, I'm trying to just memor, go from memory here, but it says something like, in a typical week, how many times do you have a glass of alcohol? And people will answer, you know, oh, three times per week. And, well, and when you do have a glass of alcohol, you know, what do you drink and how much of it? And from this they try, there's some various <laughs> complications going on that tries to translate what a glass of wine is equal to a glass of vodka and all that sort of stuff to come up with what a, an official drink is. But putting all that together, we get a distribution that looks kind of like this. Where does it go? Okay. So here's our distribution. And you see it's very right skewed. Okay. Most people, the vast majority of the people voting, uh, uh, reporting, it looks like less than 10 drinks a week, maximum 150. Okay. Very, very right skewed. And... Um, you know, this always shocks people, I and mean, it shocked me. <laughs> but the, the alcohol researchers say, no, 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 there's, they all have patients who are drinking at that level. Um, you know, all have at least one patient who, 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 who drink quite a bit. So, I mean, these, and, and notice there are no outliers. I mean, it's just a consistent right skew. People just, some people drinking an awful lot. And it's kind of interesting to examine the health of those people differently. And what, one of the things that complicates this is alcohol has different effects. It's a nonlinear effect, right? As you drink more and more, things don't change gradually. As you may know from your own experience, you suddenly fall off this uh, end. But, <laughs> but, but also the sort of health things that you're, 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 um, you're at risk for change. So moderate drinkers, there may be some, the, the theory now is there might be some protective, pr pr uh, protective effects from moderate drinking. It may be that it helps protect you against some sort of cardiovascular events and maybe against some kinds of cancers. Heavy drinkers, though, suffer, um, are high risk for accidents, you know, driving accidents, walking accidents, all those sorts of things. So, so there's some sort of plateau, and the, these drinkers are probably different from these drinkers in many other ways, and the abstainers are probably different from the moderate drinkers in other ways, too. So, so this is um, a little messy, and that it's combining groups of people who may be very different, but we're just looking at how much they drink. Keep in mind, this isn't exactly 50 drinks a week because there's some magic that goes on that tries to do some translations between, you know, what, what, what the different, how they report on the survey and how to turn that into an actual quantity. Um, but, but that's why it's called an index, because it roughly corresponds to someone who scores higher than another person, probably drinks more alcohol and more often than someone who scores lower. So that's, that's essentially what this is trying to get at. What we're going to do just to start out is try to see how well this predicts whether or not someone is disabled in 10 years from this time. So this is how much they're drinking in 1982. We want to see how, light, how well this predicts whether or not they're disabled in 1992. So the most straightforward way of looking at that is just to look at the plot. So um, it's this 92 cat. So here's the plot. So what do you see? <laughs> what does this tell you about the relationship between 
drinking levels on this axis and, and, can, uh, and disabilities here. It doesn't look very strong. Does it look very linear? No. If you had to guess, what would you say the relationship is? I mean, are you more or less likely to suffer disability if you drink more? Less? Yeah. So, I mean, what we've got here is, see, for these values, there's lots of ones and lots of zeros, and we can't really tell which, where there, whether there are more ones than there are zeros. If you took the average at any given point, like if you took the average at zero, what we'd get is essentially the percent of people who drank zero drinks, the percentage of people who were disabled 10 years later. So averages here are percentages that are telling us about the percent of people who are disabled. So they're kind of working as probabilities. So this is an estimate of the probability that someone will be disabled in 10 years time if we can figure out what the average is here. Okay, you've never seen plots like this. I mean, the questions that we had to look at before, you know, is, 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 is it linear, is it uh, a strong associated weak, are really hard to get information out of this plot. And if you try and just kind of naively fit a line, let's just look and see what the regression line looks like. You don't need a lot of analysis to tell you this is a bad fit, right? It's not really capturing the trend. In fact, it predicts that if you drink enough, um, <laughs> you'll have a negative probability of having, you know, you, you'll get better or something like this. It, it's hard to say what this, what this would mean if it became negative. Okay, but, but it doesn't seem to really, even though it's, it's, it is in fact kind of the average more or less at each point, it's, it's not really capturing the trend of what's going on. So what we need is a different shape function that tries to account for what this is going on. And this function needs at least two characteristics here. It can't ever be bigger than one and it can't ever be less than zero. Because we don't want to go outside of that range because that's, that's impossible with these data. So we need some sort of function that takes all of that into account. Oh. So the slope, what is interesting is the slope is negative. Okay, so this does seem to be suggesting that people who drink more are less inclined to be disabled 10 years later. If the um, patients die, like, during this years, should they drop out of that? If they're died in this data set, they're missing. Okay. So they're not, they're not used. So the person who drank more than 150 didn't have any disability? No. <laughs> right. Well, you're getting at the issue, though, of, of, of what makes this hard to interpret as far as health goes. It could be that a lot of these people here, um, they may be undisabled, but there might be a lot of people drinking this amount who 10 years later were dead. So it, it, it may be that we see this trend because heavy drinkers are dying, and, and you know, so maybe they're not disabled because maybe the, the effects of, of it is to kill you suddenly. Oddly enough, they don't count death as a disability in this data set, which you know, it seems like you can't dress yourself, you can't go to the store, so it should be a disability, but um, it, it, it's, not in this, it's not coded that way in this data set. Um, quite likely, I mean, think about why people might be abstainers. 
One reason is it may be because your doctor told you you can't drink anymore because you're not healthy. So quite likely these, these abstaining people are already maybe on the fringes of a, of a disability when they started out and so 10 years later we're seeing that that took its case, you know, it eventually happened. So there are all sorts of reasons for why this could be negative without it meaning that dr drinking is good for you, uh, especially the heavy drinking we're seeing out here. But it is kind of interesting that there are really no disabled people beyond 80 drinks per week. Um, but then there are also very few people drinking more than 80 drinks per week also. So, so in any case, it, it, it's an interesting data set and we'll try and tease out. But this is the first chance to kind of remind you that just because we're going to see some possibly beneficial effects to drinking, uh, that that doesn't mean that you should do it because it doesn't mean that it'll actually help you uh, save your life or anything like that. Um, okay, so let's look at some, um, go back to the chalkboard here. So the, where is the good chalk? So to remind you of, of, of what we did when we looked at regression, when we looked at regression, before we had this mean function that looked like this, that, that forced things, I guess I don't need the one there, for any given value of x, call it x of i, uh, we said that the mean was along this straight line. That straight line doesn't work for data like these, so what we need is a new function. So one thing we're going to do is instead of using this, um, we're moving into a realm now called the generalized linear model. And basically, this is a new way of thinking about the linear model that covers more than just straight line associations. So one of the first generalizations we're going to do is we're going to write the mean function um, a little more generally. So we're going to write it as this variable theta that depends on uh, a particular value of x. So at different values of x, the mean has a different value. And for this data set, what we're going to use is this function, um, e to the beta prime x of i over 1 plus e to the beta prime x of i. So beta here is a vector. So that's, you know, so x beta prime x of i is essentially the sum of all of these different things. So beta prime x of i is the sum of beta i, i equals 1 to, I'm sorry, i equals 0 to p um, times x sub i. So it's just uh, adding up, you know, as many parameters as we want to put in there, as many different predictors. So in the simple case where we have just this one predictor, x represents the alcohol intake and then beta is the coefficient that's going to measure how strong the association is between alcohol intake, or how, you know, a measure what the effect is between alcohol intake and, and, and this this mean over here, okay? So, um, yeah, if, if you were to plot this, it looks like, the plot looks like that. It's an S-shaped curve, and you can make the S go from, this is a positive association, you can, you, by changing the signs, you'll get a negative association, and the value of the parameter determines how steep that is and all, but, but you can see how intuitively this looks like it would be a good sort of thing for zero-one data because it lets you be kind of flat for a long time and then it allows all sorts of steep and not-so-steep increases, but then it, it, it uh, 
has an asymptote that approaches one, so it's never going to exceed one or, or go below zero. So it, it, it's a good candidate for, for data like this. It's also favored by a lot of epidemiologists and biologists because there seem to be some natural, you know, in the same way that there are a lot of data that seem to follow a linear model, there are a lot of data that seem to fit this sort of curve rather well. So, you know, we pulled this out of the air in some sense, and there's no way of reasoning about drinking and, and, and disability to, to derive a curve like this. But it is used often in biology, and it seems to fit pretty well. So, so that's our, our, our candidate curve. So um, this is the curve we're going to, this is the mean function that we're going to try to fit. Keep in mind here that the mean represents the probability of a success, <laughs> although at a given point. So success, you know, we're using this terminology and it may be uh, a bad thing or a good thing, but it's a probability that an event happens. So in this case, our mean function is telling us the probability that someone will be, be disabled in 10 years' time, given the amount that they drink. And so instead of modeling that as a straight line, which we saw doesn't work, we're going to model it as this odd function like this. And we're going to go through the same sort of things. We're going to try to find the values of beta that make the model fit as well as possible. When we have this challenge with linear regression, what we did was we used least squares. So in linear regression, we used least squares to find the beta half. And basically what we did was we looked at the differences between the values and, um, And, and the predictions, the squared sum of the distances, and we, and we found a way of minimizing that to find out what those parameters needed to be. It turns out that in some situations you can do the same thing with these sorts of data, but more often than not that doesn't work, and we'll talk about why in a second. So in fact what's used is something called um, maximum likelihood estimation. So if you've had 100 A or B, then you know something about what that is. But the basic idea is what we try to do is we try to find the values of, given a set of data, we've collected some data now, we want to find the values of beta that make this most likely, this particular data set most likely to occur. And uh, that's the kind of, requires some heavy computational stuff, not too heavy, but, but in any case. So, so there's a lot more, there are no nice equations we can write on the board now to tell you exactly what the formula are for these estimates. It's kind of coded into a computer routine that's trying to maximize this function. Um, so you have to kind of take it on faith somewhat. It also means we're going to be using some different packages in R, but the basic idea conceptually is still the same. We have a model, we have some data, we're going to try and fit those parameters so that they make the model fit as well as possible. Um, one thing that's kind of nice is we're going to want to rewrite this function. There's a nice way of rewriting it. So, so we've got theta, let's just call it theta sub i is equal to um, e to the beta. I'm just going to write it beta sub i, um, 1 plus e to the beta, x sub i. We can rewrite this as 1 over e to the minus beta, x sub i, plus 1, something like that. So make that a little nicer. Well, not that much nicer. And what we want to do is solve for, solve for beta x i. So you multiply this through and you get theta times 1 plus e to the minus beta 
at size is equal to 1. So theta plus theta e to the minus theta at i is equal to 1. So theta times e to the minus theta x sub i is equal to 1 minus theta. So e to the minus theta x sub i is equal to 1 minus theta over theta. That, and this is just algebra, I don't know why I'm going through it now, but I am. So e to the beta x sub i is equal to theta over 1 minus theta, and that means beta sub x sub i is equal to the log of theta over 1 minus theta. And let me just go through and turn this back into vectors now that I'm done writing, because that is a little more general to say we're, we're adding them all up. Yeah, beta transpose. Yeah. For all of them. Yes, for all of them, yeah. Thank you. So this is kind of nifty because this side looks a little awful, but this side doesn't. This side is a nice linear model again. So we could think of this as our response. And this is a linear model. Notice how far away this response is from what we observe, though. So we observe a 1 or a 0 if a person is disabled um, at the drinking value of x sub i, whatever x sub i represents. So that's just a yes or no sort of variable. But then what we do for it is we're, our response variable now is this complicated function that's the probability that that person is disabled. So then theta is the mean or probability of a 1 or 0, I mean of a 1, or so of a disability. Let me just say, we observe a 1 if a person is disabled. If they're not disabled, we see 0. Theta then is the problem. And then we're, we're looking at theta over 1 minus theta and taking the log. Okay? And it turns out, although this looks kind of messy, it has a nice interpretation. And this side is called um, the log odds ratio, and also sometimes the log logit. And it's called the log odds ratio because theta over 1 minus theta is the odds ratio. So any of you who've ever placed a bet know about odds ratios. It's the probability that the event happens divided by the probability that it doesn't happen. Okay, so the probability that you're going to be disabled divided by the probability that you're not. So if this is, say, uh, the number 4, that means you're four times as likely to be disabled as you are not. Normally, this is reported in a ratio of like 4 to 1. So, you know, they'll say something like the odds are 4 to 2 in favor of something such happening. And we'll really say 4 to 2. But they'll say the odds are 4 to 1 in favor of uh, your horse winning. And that means the horse is four times more likely to win than it is to lose. Or they might say, you know, it's, it's the odds are 2 to 3 against, which means there's 
for, for every two chances your horse has of winning, there's three chances it'll lose. So the same sort of thing here. If, um, if this is bigger than one, then you're more likely to be disabled. And if it's less than one, then you're less likely to be disabled. And if it's equal to one, then both of these things are the same, and then you have equal chances of being disabled. Okay, so, so that's essentially what this is measuring, and then we're taking the log of that sort of thing. So the basic approach is instead of trying to predict whether there's a one or a zero, and instead of trying to predict what the mean value is, we're going to use this as our response function because that's a nice linear fit. Now, in practice, if we wanted to, we could use least squares on this sort of thing and get some reasonable estimations. If you do, so, The best estimate of theta hat turns out to be um, the number of successes, in, or so, in disabilities. So if you want to know, you know, what, what the probability is that someone is going to be disabled when they drink zero, find out how many people are drinking zero, and then find out how many of them are, you know, so it's just a straightforward binomial sort of probability. One reason this kind of doesn't work for most data is we often have values for which there's only one observation. So there is only one person who drank 150 a week, fortunately. Um, there were very few people who drank, you know, 12 or 13 a week. So we can't really get very good estimates when we have so, so, so few things to estimate. And so for that reason, the least squares thing doesn't work because often this is zero in the denominator or just the number one we don't get a good estimate of it. So that's why we use maximum likelihood. So, so this doesn't always work since uh, the denominator is often zero or one or small numbers. So that we, you know, we either get uh, an infinite, or we get an undefined estimate, or uh, there's too much variability in the estimate because there's just uh, not enough observations. And so for that reason, so we use maximum likelihood. We're not going to talk about maximum likelihood estimation, so just think of it as a black box. I mean, it's a, uh, that's essentially how it functions. It's a computer algorithm. Uh, you know, if there's a mathematical theory around it, but to get the actual computations out, it's a computer algorithm. Often it uses the Newton-Raphson's technique or some sort of thing like that. You, you put your data in, and it computes the, the, the output parameters that maximize this particular function, and you get some parameters out. But there's no nice equation we can write down for it now. And so, you know, if you take 100B or something, you'll learn about what exactly is going on um, behind maximum likelihood estimation. But in the meantime, just, just take it as yet another estimation procedure uh, and, and, and one that works fairly well here. What we're going to see is a lot of the intuition you've developed about linear regression still works, but the details have to be changed. And so we're going to be talking about slightly different ways. 
We're not going to get into great detail about logistic regression in this class. Uh, it's another one of those topics that if you want, you can buy a book and take a whole class on the subject. We don't offer one here, but some places do, and you can take them in grad school, and, or you could read the whole book. I mean, so there are all sorts of details you can follow. Uh, but we're just going to kind of skim the surface and, and, and get at the heart of the matter. Um, one thing I want us to pay attention to, though, is how well it works for this particular problem. This prediction problem you're going to be seeing, I mean, is, is a very classic problem now that it used to not be able to do very well with these sorts of things, but we're going to try and look at different prediction routines to try and see how well we can classify this. So uh, the classic context, and with, so, so medicine is one classic context like this we're talking about now. Um, and you can see how it would be occur again and again. I mean, if you're giving someone chemotherapy, you want to predict the probability that they're alive in 10 years versus not. You know, so you want to classify them as a survivor or non-survivor based on the treatment they get. So that's, that's one way it's used. It's used in computer science because when you, an email comes into your box, you want to predict whether it's a, a junk email or not. So you're, you're looking at some characteristics of the email and trying to determine which box to put it into. All those sorts of things require some sort of statistical procedure underlying them, and we're going to kind of gradually chip away at some, some different candidate procedures for that sort of, sort of action. Um, so let's see, we talked about the odds ratio, parameters, number, yeah. So, um, so let's just let y sub i equal the number of successes. I just want to give you a little background for, for kind of what the theory is underlying this. One big difference between this sort of regression and what we just saw is in linear regression, the errors were always distributed how? I mean, what did we usually assume they were followed as a distribution? Normal, Normal right. You can see that's not going to work here because there's just zeros or ones. So the model that we're going to use now is this assumption that they follow a binomial distribution. So. So a binomial distribution has two parameters. So the first is m sub i is the number of attempts, which here translates to the number of people with the value, you know, at a given x sub i. So if x sub i is 0 or if x sub i is 10, m sub i is the number of people who scored a 10. And then the other parameter is um, the probability of a success, and that's what we're calling the status of i. So what we really want to do is estimate the status of i, and so you should remember then from, from basic theory that the, the expected value of a binomial random variable is um, is the number of successes times the probability of a success, but if you divide this by n, m sub i, well that's divided by m sub i. So, so the mean function of the number of successes divided by um, the number of attempts should be equal to this, this thing that we're trying to model. And, and this is what then, um, you know, through some transformations, is, is, is the, the, the object that we actually are modeling. Other thing to point out is the variance here is messy. Um, yeah. 
the variance is, is non-constant because it's going to, the variance depends upon the mean and the mean depends upon the variance, uh, the value of x sub i, so at every value of x sub i we're going to have a different variance. One way of handling this in linear regression is to do weighted least squares, which we didn't talk about, but that's one way of doing it. But weighted least squares requires that you have fairly large values at each value, so your m sub i's need to be fairly large at each observation. We don't have that here, and we often don't, so weighted least squares doesn't work, and that's another reason why we use maximum likelihood instead of, instead of least squares procedures. Okay, so, so essentially, one way of thinking about this, and this carries over to other regression types as well, is it's the same as the regression we did before, except instead of a normal distribution, we now have a binomial distribution. And instead of that linear thing, we, we have now this well, we transform the response to force it to be linear. So it's just a fancy transformation like we saw before that forces the, the fit to look linear. So if you actually did this transformation, you'd get a nice straight line out of the plot. Okay, any, any questions so far? Okay. So let's see, should we look at some stuff? Um, yeah, let's just go ahead and look at an output. So, so let's see what happens when we fit this function to these data. The next thing we're going to have to talk about is, is how to interpret these responses and uh, you'll see in a second. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to drag and drop. So the command make this a little bigger for now. Uh, I was not going to like this anyways, but... <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble now. Yeah, it's, it's especially this Mac. Okay, well, this is as big as I'm going to make it. <laughs> uh, so let me just show you what this command is. Uh, I'm going to have to do it again because it's, I copied the wrong thing. Instead of LM, it's GLM for general linear model. And again, all these things will be online. The formula structure is the same. It's the response is a function of the, the, the predictor. So cat disability, this is a variable that stores a 1 or a 0, is a function of their drinking level. The one thing that's different now is we have to tell it what sort of family, what sort of um, distribution that the, the, the variable follows, and so we're telling it that it's a, a, a binomial family. Okay, so, so that's the new command for, for doing this, um, and then you can actually leave that out. And then I'll from there on, it looks the same. Oops. You do a summary command. And I, I'm just going to, we'll talk about what these mean in a minute. Um, but let's just see, because it's, it's the same, but it's different. <laughs> okay, so you get the same sort of measurement of the residuals, and we'll talk about what the word deviance means. And now we have our estimates of the intercept. 
So one thing we have to focus on first is, is how do we interpret what these estimates mean. But you know, you get the same sort of thing. You get the estimates, you get the standard error. Instead of a t-test, it's now a z, a z test. Um, this is actually called the Wald statistic. Um, and then it's giving you a p-value. So um, let's just use, just for the sake of conversation, notice that at a 5% level, this isn't significant. Okay, but for the sake of conversation, we'll use a 10% level today. <laughs> so we can talk about this as if it were significant, because it's, it's not so far off. And in fact, uh, if we control, well, th this will be an issue in the whole class, because it's very unclear whether alcohol is, is a significant predictor or not. So that's, that's one thing we'll try to explore. Um, so the intercept is definitely significant. We have this potentially significant term. We want to understand what these mean. One thing to notice is there's no R-squared term here. Okay, R-squared, remember, was the square of the correlation coefficient that kind of measured the, the goodness of fit, so it was useful for making predictions. But remember, one requirement was that the data had to follow this linear model. These data don't, so R-squared doesn't help us. I mean, it doesn't have any application. It does give us an AIC, like we saw last time, and you want this to be as small as possible. So this is one way of comparing one model to another, is you want the AIC to be you know, smaller values or preferred over bigger values. And it's got this new term called deviance. So we'll, we'll have to talk about deviance and, and, and what that measures. But it's essentially R-squared-like, and it's another way of trying to evaluate how well, in some cases, how, how well the model fits. Okay? Let's just look at a plot, and I'm going to do these commands kind of quickly because um, I'll put them all in at once. just want you to see what the plot looks like. So you can see the commands themselves um, online, but, but here's, the, here's the line. And you can see it's, um, it's not perfect. Uh, it's not the best to fit, but it seems to fit much better than this. In particular, it's kind of nice that it seems to be leveling off somewhere around 0.19 or something like that. So it, 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 it kind of looks like it's not going to predict that the more you drink, you'll just get better and better and better. It looks like there's some point at which it just levels off and uh, you're, you're not going to improve any. Um, and and it, it seems to fit just a, a little better. Okay. Turns out that, well, well, we'll talk about how well this model is a, a bit later. Um, one thing to think about is um, how would you determine, since there's, so one thing the R-squared term gave us, remember big R-squared meant that the points were really spread out from the line, and I'm sorry, big R-squared meant the points were really close to the line. And that meant it was easier to make predictions because if you predicted a value, you knew that you, the truth couldn't be too far away. So we want to do the same sort of thing here now, right? We want to be able to say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to predict that you have a, a, God, like a 35% chance or something of, of being disabled. <laughs> Uh, you know, what, what does that tell us? Uh, how close is that going to be to reality? Does that really mean that 35% of the people later are going to be disabled and all that sort of stuff? We want some way of being able to, to measure how, how good that works. One kind of nice way of thinking about it is that uh, we can kind of test this, right? We can say, I, I'm going to predict everyone who falls above a certain point that will say that that person is going to be disabled. So any, any value that's a, a prediction level of 49% or higher will classify as disabled. And, um, and, then, and then we'll see how, follow them up 10 years later and we can see if that's right or wrong. And so we, we, we can classify things that way. So, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, let's talk about how to interpret these coefficients though. 
So let me write this down over here. So the model we got was that the log of theta over 1 minus theta was equal to minus 0.77, this was our intercept, plus minus 0.01, so this was our coefficient, times the QFI. So to interpret this, we're basically just going to solve for solve for theta here. And so if you take the log of both sides, I mean the this you know, raise these both sides to expon exponential the e to the minus 0.77 times e to the minus 0.01 times the QFI. And one way of looking at this is to look at um, Yeah, so let's so let's look at um, compare two groups. So group one, we're going to say their QFI was some number x naught, and group two, their QFI is going to be one unit more. essentially want to see, you know, how, how that's changed. So, so how those two groups compare. So the people who are this, th what this line predicts is, let's predict for group two, so we get e to the minus 0.77 times e to the minus 0.01 QFI, oops, I'm sorry, we call this x naught, x naught plus one. So that's e to the minus 0.77 times e to the minus 0.01 times x naught times uh, e to the minus 0.01. So that's um, that's the same as the prediction for x naught. Times e to the minus 0.01. So what this says is, this is the odds ratio for group one times e to the minus 0.01. So what this says is the odds ratio for groups two, group two, is the odds for group one times this number. So this number is the multiplication factor. It says this is the effect of drinking an extra drink a day, is your odds are multiplied, your odds ratio are multiplied by this amount here. Okay, so this amount turns out to be so e to the minus 0.01 is about 0.99. So what this says is drinking that extra drink a day 
you multiply your odds by 0.99, your, your odds ratio. So if whatever your odds ratio was before, after you multiplied it by 0.99, it's going to be smaller, right? So the odds of being disabled versus not have gone down. So this is telling us um, those who drink more are less likely to be disabled. So if this odds ratio were one, that would be telling us that both groups were the same, that, that the drinking doesn't have a big effect. And, um, but, and if the odds were, if this number were bigger than one, that would be saying the additional drinks were increasing this odds ratio and making you more likely than you were before. Okay, but the way it is now is every time you have this other drink, your odds go down by just a little bit. And, and in the long run, you're less likely, uh, on average, you're less likely to be disabled than you were compared to the group that drank a little less than you did, your group did. Okay. So, again, there are all these caveats to keep in mind. We still reach the same conclusion, sort of, as looking at the, at, at the linear line about how it seems that drinking more helps. And this seems to verify that to some extent. I mean, the difference is that it's not predicting that you'll continuously get better. But it is kind of saying this, this, the same idea that those who are drinking more seem to be better off as far as disabilities go. But keep in mind that this is this very complex data. It's an observational study. It includes people with all sorts of different levels of health. And those levels of health seem to be confounded with their drinking habits. So it's really hard to tease all these things apart. So what we really want to get at is how good a model is this? And, and how good a job does it do predicting it? So that if someone tells you how much they're drinking and you're their doctor, how well can you predict their health in 10 years' time? And essentially throughout the quarter, we're going to be looking at various ways of answering that question for this data set and trying to do better and better than, than we can now. But, but next time, we'll talk a little bit about how to interpret the rest of that output uh, and, and how to understand, um, how to evaluate the performance of this, of this model. Okay? Any, any questions? Okay. See you on, uh, on Wednesday then.